you can't love somebody unless you know them. You can't love somebody unless you know them. Unless you know, we can't truly follow Rasulullah and love him uh, with the love that he is deserving of وسلم, unless we actually know him, right? Uh, you know, we know his life, we know his struggles, we know what he went through, right? We know his family business, we know his, uh, we know all of that stuff, right? Your best friend, you know everything about them, right? They call you up, they hit you up to talk to you about what's going on in their life, you know. I'm, you know, just got in a fight with my mom. I just, you know, I'm going through something with my brother, with my sister, whatever it is, right? And we we empathize with them. We feel with them. We uh, we engage with them. That's how we're going to learn to love Rasulullah when we truly understand how he lived his life, how he was with the people around him, who he was, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So this is, inshallah, from you know, studying his life from the perspective of. Uh, asking ourselves continuously, what is it that I can take that is going to, you know, and how can I apply this into uh, my everyday life? Humanizing the Prophet وسلم, uh, knowing that he did exist. He was the greatest of creation to walk the face of this earth. Everything that he did was because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him revelation to do that. Every time you smile, every time you hold the door open for somebody, every time, uh, you know, you are doing something that is from his tradition, وسلم, you are keeping him alive. And that is, that is important uh, to, to understand that uh, it is not, we, we try to act like Rasulullah, look like him, speak like him, talk like him, everything, right? We try to do that because it brings us uh, like very close to him. Uh, it allows us to love him. You know how they say when you, when you hang around with somebody so much, you begin to act like them? You know, you start to laugh like them. You start to sound like them. It's funny Then you're always seen around and people are like, oh, you know, are you guys sisters? Are you guys brothers? Right? Because you guys are, you, go, you become so close. When you walk, let people, let people be reminded of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by how you act. Right? Let them see you and let them see that this person is acting in the manner of Rasulullah and his teachings, alayhi salatu wasalam. Okay, so we talked a little bit about uh, those things. We talked about, um, you know, and I'm not going to get too much because we have a lot to catch up on here. Uh, but we talked about uh, the theology uh, part, you know, uh, what is, you know, what is sunnah mean and the opposite of sunnah meaning bid'ah which is something that's an innovation in Islam. When you create something new in religion, there's something called bid'atul hasana, which is a good form of innovation, meaning that it has no relation to actual, um, you know, religious matters and affairs. So in that regards, it is okay. But if it is something that uh, you perform new in, 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 in religious affairs and matters, then this is called a bid'ah. Right or an innovation which is haram. Rasulullah sallam says, "Kullu bid'atin dalala." Every bid'ah will lead you astray. Wa kullu dalalatin finnar. And every time you led astray, everything that leads you astray will lead you to the hellfire. May Allah subhanahu wa taala protect us all. So that is uh, that is uh, the opposite of of sunnah. But we talked about the difference between sunnah, seerah, and hadith, and each of them has has uh, their own place. And seerah was meant for was meant for all demographics of the community. And the main purpose of the seerah, of studying the life of Rasulullah was what? Was to humanize him, Sallallahu That is a very important fact that we have to embed in our minds. That is the purpose of the seerah, 
to humanize them. Yes, we're going to study facts. We're going to take dates. We're going to write down notes, inshallah. We're going to memorize names, bi'idhnillah. But at the same time, we want to make this relevant and we want to understand that these are all aspects of his life for us to be able to allow, uh, to recognize that he's a human, right? These dates existed. These people existed. These places and times uh, all existed, right? Uh, And this was a guide for us of how to live our lives, that regardless of the time of Rasulullah even though it was a different time, different place, the seerah is still relevant, right? We are still, you know, uh, able to implement the seerah in our uh, everyday lives. And our sharia uh, encompasses a way in which we can live, but even what is culturally accepted is, is you know, accepted in our faith as well. That is something that is uh, important to understand. Uh, you know, people will say, okay, Rasulullah wore certain clothes. He wore the izar, right? He wore like, uh, like two pieces of garments. Do I need to walk around in that, you know, and go to Orland Square Mall um, and walk around in, you know, izar? No, the scholars say that the, the, the clothing of your people, right? That is sunnah. The sunnah is the clothing of your people, what you're dressing. Because Rasulullah he wore the same exact clothes as the mushrikun, as Abu Lahab and Abu Jahal. He wore the same clothes as them, right? So didn't differentiate. That was just the culture of, 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 of the time. As long as, again, it is within the boundaries of what is accepted in our uh, Islamic uh, law, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. Uh, so we talked about, again, what we're going to talk about. Um, we talked about uh, the seerah, uh, uh, you know, being a lot of, a lot of the seerah was documented in Medina uh, because Rasulullah lived a majority of his life in Medina, but there is a lot that happened in Mecca, which we're going to discuss bi'idhnillahi ta'ala, uh, inshallah. Now getting started, um, Today we're going to talk about, we're still in the introduction phase, and this is the tradition of our scholars, that before we even dive into the seerah, we talk about his, how he was born, his family, all that stuff. It's important to get a really, really good grasp on the background of the life of Rasulullah uh, and, and pre-Islamic Arabia, right? What was, what was it like before Rasulullah How did he come into this world? Right? What were the conditions of this world when he came in? And why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose for, those, for that specific time? Because there's no such thing as a coincidence. There's no such thing as karma in our faith. Right? Everything happens for a reason because Allah willed for it to happen at that exact time, at that exact place, in that exact manner. So today, uh, we, uh, last time we talked again about like a little bit a background of, of, of uh, the extent of what seerah means. Today we're going to understand the geographical, historical, genealogical, political, economic, uh, and even the cultural, some of the cultural circumstances of the time of Rasulullah Okay, so again, that last session was dedicated to the seerah and uh, focus on why we study. And this is, this is what we're focusing on uh, today, bi'idhnillahi uh, ta'ala. Uh, and this is all because unless you really understand, uh, you know, the circumstances, the situations that were present at that time, then you don't have a full, again, appreciation of who Rasulullah was, what he was able to accomplish, the lasting legacy, the legacy he left behind, unless you understand what, what was, was going on. There's actually a, a famous uh, proverb it says that you can only appreciate the beauty 
of roses when it's present amongst thorns, right? The rose uh, truly shows its beauty when it sits amongst thorns. It's a, it's a famous proverb. And this is, this is Rasulullah coming into a time, right, uh, you know, of darkness, time of disbelief, right? The life of, of the Prophet is such a miracle in and of itself that his life, the way that he lived, uh, the change that he was able to make, وسلم, uh, that can only truly be understood and appreciated once you fully comprehend the circumstances, the situations that were present at the time uh, you know, of his life, وسلم. So again, today's session is going to be solely uh, dedicated to understanding pre-Islamic uh, Arabia, understanding the time before Rasulullah what was the situation. And we're going to start off with uh, very basic details, inshallah. And this is, again, the sign and the tradition of our, our scholars that the way that they, uh, the traditional scholarship presented uh, you know, these topics first was to understand, again, we know the land, uh, the extent of what was going on, the time, the place, you know, what was referred to as Arab, uh, and, 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 and so on. So firstly, uh, what does Arab itself mean? You hear, hear that often. And there's a lot of different opinions, but something very interesting, um, right, uh, is also part of the reason why Rasulullah was sent amongst these people, understanding who these people were and their situation, and what they were capable of, uh, of doing, right? Both good and bad. Uh, and this also, understanding this, answers the question, the philosophical question, why was Rasulullah sent among these people? Why was the Qur'an revealed in Arabic? Uh, why was the Qur'an revealed amongst these specific people? Why did Allah choose these people specifically, right? And we're going to talk about that and answer that inshallah. So the word Arab itself, when you get down to the etymology of the word, the root of the word, uh, there's a difference of opinions. Uh, but one of the most basic understandings of this word in its absolute root is that it refers to something that flows. Arab means something that flows, okay? Uh, and based on that, the word Arab would refer to clarity of speech. And that's why the Arab, they used to call themselves uh, Arab, because they believed that they spoke clearly amongst everybody else. They set themselves apart by their speech, by their language. Uh, and typically, uh, you, know, you know what Arabs uh, you know, call non-Arabs? They call them Ajam, right? Somebody who's non-Arab, they call them Ajam. And Ajam is somebody who doesn't speak clearly or who doesn't speak, right? It doesn't mean that they're a mute, but they don't speak uh, clearly. They literally babble. It's like gibberish. Literally, that's what Ajam means. Like that they're not, they're not uh, you know, somebody who babbles or doesn't speak clearly. So again, it's extracted from that because they believe that their, su their speech was superior because it flowed, right? It flowed well and it ran like no other language, Okay, uh, no other form of speech. And that's why uh, their language was called that, Arabi, right, or Arabic. Uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, he never uses uh, the word Arab itself in the Quran. It's not used in the Quran. Um, there are different forms of it that are used in the Quran. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, uh, Arabiyun, Quranun Arabiyun, right? But he doesn't say Arab. 
so the Arabi, which is an extract, Arabi is extraction of Arab. And it means something that is Arab. Okay, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the Quran, it's something that is Arab. It is from the Arabic language. And Rasulullah he used this word as well from his hadith. We have a famous hadith and he and, and we extract it to understand and to for allow us to mean that it means flowing of speech. Okay? Uh, or to be very clear in one speech or to articulate. Okay, Rasulullah uh, he says, He uses the word here coming from Arab, And when talking about, you know, here just like a side tangent, technicalities, in the fiqh of marriage, we all know that the nikah, you know, the, the, the contract of marriage here, uh, that an unmarried single woman who's never been married before, uh, when she's getting married at that time, she requires the permission and the representation of her wali, her guardian, right? Uh, but the Prophet ﷺ says that a woman who's been married previously, now she's either you know, widowed or she's divorced. The Prophet ﷺ says that her own tongue will speak on her behalf, meaning that she's now allowed to represent herself in, in a marriage ceremony, in marriage uh, proceedings. So Rasulullah ﷺ, He's using this word yu'rabu, right? Which means com coming from the word Arab to be very clear. She can clearly articulate now. Uh, and, and this is the way that the Arab would use this, this word. Uh, and they had an expression, the Arab. They would call somebody Arabiyul lisan, which would you know, mean somebody who speaks very clearly. Uh, and similarly, you know, the second meaning of that word in which the Arabs would use uh, the word Arab itself actually is happiness. It would mean happiness. Or for something to be, uh, you know, emotionally fulfilling. And this is used in the Quran in Surah Al-Waqi'ah when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he talks about the people of paradise and he says, فَجَعَلْنَاهُنَّ أَبْكَارًا عُرُوبًا أَتْرَابًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, عُرُوبًا أَتْرَابًا Allah refers to the companions of paradise as Urub, which literally means somebody who is very loyal, somebody who is very loving, has a, is literally a passionate lover. That's what Urub is called here. Uh, so these people, they were called Arab as well. So all of these qualities, these characteristics described what these people were like. Uh, they were very clear in their speech. They were very articulate in their speech, in their language. In fact, it could be argued that they were the most articulate when it came to speech and language, you know? And secondly, what was the second meaning we said? They were passionate. So clear in speech, number one. Number two, they were passionate people. Uh, you know, too often when we talk about pre-Islamic Arabia, we talk about all of the bad. You're, it, what hits you is all of the bad, like Jahiliya, the time before Islam, it hits you, you know, all of the bad. And we don't talk about the good uh, that was prevalent during the time. And something that's very interesting is that the Arab had a great admiration for the qualities that we call hilm, right, or forbearance, you know, uh, to have composure, uh, to be very peaceful, to be very calm, to be very serene. Now, when you think of Arab, that's probably like the last thing that you think of is calm and serene and peaceful, right? But the Arab were used to, believe it or not, used to be known as very calm and serene. 
and they had a great admiration for these qualities. And part of the reason for these qualities were, uh, you know, these qualities were very rare amongst the Arab because they were, again, they were so passionate. They were very passionate people, right? They were very expressive people. Uh, you know, so oftentimes they had, you know, trouble even trying to control their own emotions. And I'm sure everybody has like experiences of their own with their Arab families, right? They have uh, difficulty controlling their own uh, emotions. So again, that quality of passion was, was found amongst the people. Uh, lastly, you know, chaos, right? These people, uh, you know, they were chaotic. They were chaotic, really. Um, because there was, we, and we have to understand why, there was no establishment of a government. There was no government during the time. There was no systematic form of economics at the time. Uh, there was not a centralized religion for people during pre-Islamic Arabia, okay? Uh, so the primary factors that unite people, that organize people, these factors that bring people together, they weren't even present. Uh, so uh, again, they didn't have any of these things. And that led to a lot of the chaos that we see and we find in pre-Islamic Arabia. Uh, and it was first the religion which brought a system you know, of governance, which established an economic system. And that all came from Islam, right? That came from Islam. Now to talk about you know, the history of the Arab, and this is something that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but uh, there's a lot of details in this. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, he talks maybe about, you know, like a hundred plus pages uh, in classical Arabic and he dives into the history of the Arab, uh, okay? And there's a lot of interesting things that we can find here, but part of the focus of these sessions, inshallah, is to engage with the life of Rasulullah in a very practical, very relevant manner, you know? So they divide, you know, Arab into two primary categories, um, two primary categories, and then it's divided into, major, into two major categories, okay? And we're going to talk about these categories of how they divide uh, the Arab. So first are the ancient Arab or the perished Arab, okay? And we have to understand this because we have to know where, where does Rasulullah come from, okay? So understand this very clearly. And this is always kind of like the dry part almost when you kind of study the seerah understanding this, but I need you guys to stick with me here because it's important to understand. Um, so we have the ancient Arab or the perished Arab, if you will. Those are the Arab who largely perished, okay? Not a lot of them remained and not a lot of them is known outside of, you know, the religious traditions that we have, the perished Arab. The second category of Arab is the Arab who remained, okay? the migrated Arab, we call them. And the reason that, you know, they're called migrated Arab is because we find them primarily, uh, or at the time of Rasulullah it seems that uh, the epicenter was the, you know, Arabian Peninsula here, okay? And when in reality, these people that we see as Arab at the time were not originally from that area. So the people that we consider Arab, they weren't from that area, okay? Uh, so the second category are the Arab who remain. First category are who? Perished Arab. Second category are the migrated Arab or the Arab that, that, that remained. Okay. And these are known again as, uh, as the migrated Arab. Um, and they migrated to that region from other regions. Uh, and that's why these, they, they, they remained. Okay. The second, that's the second category. So amongst the Arab who remained, 
Okay, so no longer the perished Arab. We're talking about specifically the migrated Arab, the ones who remained. Amongst those are two subcategories. Okay, first we refer, the first category we refer to them as the pure Arab. Okay, and the pure Arab uh, were primarily what I'll, you know, what is referred to in classical times. Uh, the, that region was called the same name as Yemen. Okay, what we know as current day or modern day Yemen. Okay, that was, that were the pure Arab. And even in ancient times, classical times, that region of the world was still referred to Yemen. And they were basically Yemeni Arab, okay? And they had a lot, they had come into the Arabian Peninsula, which we call Hijaz. So they migrated from that, that uh, area of Yemen. And there's even a history to that. You know, the Quran makes reference to Saylul uh, Aram. Saylul Aram, uh, you know, there was a great flood and during the time of Yemen. And due to that great flood, some of the Arab had migrated to Hijaz. That's why they came over to the Arab Peninsula. They migrated over there because of that flood and because, you know, because of economic hardship. And there were basically two different tribes that were there during the time. Uh, one of them had taken control of the economy. The second tribe, because they fell behind and, you know, economically, they decided to pack up their bags and move. So they packed up their bags, they moved to a new place and they found a better future for themselves, for their kids. Um, and these were the first group of immigrants, right? Uh, you know, uh, and then the second group followed them uh, after the flood that happened. So these were the pure Arab. The second group, the, the second subcategory, the Arabized Arab, that's what we would call them. So the first one is pure Arab. The second one are the Arabized Arab, okay? Uh, the, we call them in Arabi, al-musta'arabun, al-musta'arabun. Uh, the ones who became Arab. And the primary of these categories, you know, was Ismail alayhi salam. He's from that category, the Arabized Arab, okay? He falls into that category because he wasn't Arab ethnically, okay? He was Arabized. Uh, and this constituted for a large uh, population and the wor as of the world what we see today. You know, most of us are Arabized, okay? We weren't originally Arab. Uh, and... That's what we see in the Arab world today. A vast majority falls under that category of Arabized Arab, okay? Because Islam again spread, Arabic language spread, the Arabic culture spread uh, along with it. And so much of what we know as the Arab world today is actually the Arabized world. So this is the history of these people who were known as the Arab and amongst them was Rasulullah The Prophet Rasulullah was from this category. And why is this such a prudent detail? Why is this so important? Because Rasulullah comes from the progeny of the Arabized Arab. Uh, Rasulullah comes from the progeny of the Arabized Arab and that's why we have to understand that. We have to understand that. So again, to kind of recap, if you want to kind of draw a diagram in your head here or on, uh, on a piece of paper, <laughs> uh, we had the two categories were the perished Arab and the the migrated Arab, right? And under the migrated Arab were the pure Arab and the Arabized Arab, okay? And, I, and, and, and that's talked about in probably like, uh, again, like 100 plus pages, all of that. And I summed up to you in two, two minutes here. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a lot of detail, but you know, it's, it's important to understand that. Um, the Arab Peninsula was the epicenter of trade and the business. Okay, that was the epicenter. Two 
and there's two inter- interesting dynamics here. You know, they had a very deep culture, a uh, very deep language, and it was not influenced by outside. It wasn't influenced by foreign, you know, uh, you know, influences. There was not a lot of government interest either that they had. You know, in fact, implementing a government or running your own government externally would be very difficult for them. It's a very difficult endeavor. Uh, it's almost impossible because you'd be completely cut, you know, uh, cut off from the arm, you know, of your government uh, that extended within this region. And that's why you don't have a lot of foreign invasions uh, during that time. But at the same time, in terms of trade, in terms of business, it was a very strategic region, uh, which gave these people, again, a very strategic positioning that they had. Uh, now let's talk about you know, the political situation there. Again, there's a lot of history here as well, uh, but we're going to focus on uh, at the time of the birth of Rasulullah وسلم, at the revelation of Quran, the prophethood, uh, the in, 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 uh, initiation of prophethood, uh, where the political circumstances that, you know, what were they, uh, uh, you know, what were the circumstances that existed around uh, this region? So you have a few regions, uh, a few parts of the world that bordered the Arab uh, Peninsula or Hejaz, okay, what we're going to call. The primary of them, of course, is Yemen. Now, very interestingly, uh, Yemen had been a battling ground, a war zone between the Jews and the Christians for a very, very long time, okay? And it was one of those few places amongst the ancient uh, Arab world where Judaism had taken its roots, Um, you know, it found a home uh, within Yemen. And for a very long time, we're talking about hundreds of years here, Judaism and Christianity, they've been at war, okay, within Yemen. And Judaism itself was rooted within Yemen and you had the nearby neighboring region, Abyssinia, or Ethiopia, Eastern uh, Africa, which was predominantly Christian, who had a Christian empire. So these two religions were at war for a long time. They fought over the leadership. They fought over rulers, uh, kingship of Yemen for a very long time. And we know that the Christian kingdom, in fact, uh, Abyssinia played a big foreign influence on that. You know, They backed up the Christians within Yemen for a long time of the war. Uh, close to the time of Rasulullah the Abyssinians had literally come in and taken over, right? Uh, so they had come in and straight up taken over the area of Yemen. And from there, you have the incident of the elephants, the invasion of, of, of the elephants, uh, where you have that entire situation that we're going to talk about, inshallah. Um, and during the early years of Rasulullah somewhere during that time, there was an uprising. There was a Persian influence that came into Yemen that backed up some of the Jews, uh, you know, and some local Arab tribes of Yemen, uh, the, the mushrikun, right, the, the idol worshippers, you know, they back, the Persians backed them up. And uh, they were able to overthrow the Christian Abyssinian Empire, okay? The rulership was that, uh, was, uh, that was present in Yemen. They were able to overrule that and take it over because the Persian rule basically became into, uh, came into power. So the local tribes were the ones that were put into power um, and that's attributed back to the Persian Empire. And for all intents and purposes here, uh, it's considered as an extension of the Persian Empire, that everything that took place there. Uh, however, one of the last uh, Persian rulers by the name of Badhan, he himself accepted Islam during the time of, uh, of the Prophet. And then Yemen basically 
entered into Islam. That's how Yemen came into uh, Islam. The Prophet himself, وسلم, he sent Ali radiallahu anhu, Mu'adh bin Jabal radiallahu anhu to the area of Yemen to go there to teach, to spread Islam, to talk about Islam, to give da'wah to, to the people. And so while Yemen, you know, they had their very interesting history here during the lifetime of Rasulullah they came into Islam and that was the primary region. Uh, the second region which bordered was, you know, near enough to be an influence on, you know, ancient Arabia was what we call Hira, which is modern day Iraq, okay? Uh, the southern parts of Iraq, okay? Now in that area, there was also Persian influence and that influence remained throughout the life of Rasulullah and it was only after the time of Rasulullah during the Khilafah of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu where the locals, uh, you know, and what I refer to the locals is the local Arab tribes, okay? For a very long time, it was Persian influence, but Umar radiallahu anhu, uh, you know, uh, was able to take power and, and regain you know, the region for the, for the Muslims. But literally, they were in power for not even an entire year until Khalid ibn Walid overtook that region uh, and, that, uh, and, and basically came into under, the, 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 under rule over there. Okay. Uh, at that time, the peninsula, the Arab peninsula, from the north was, of course, Syria, or what we call Bilad al-Sham, okay, was Christians primarily. They were Christian. And their influence was from Rome, okay? They had a big Roman influence. Uh, they were heavily uh, Christian in that area. And it affected the northern regions of the peninsula, which were also primarily Christian at that time. And, uh, of course, the Christian influence within the northern region uh, of Syria lasted until Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiallahu anhu. And then they also came into Islam. Now, I keep mentioning a lot you know, the reference to the religion of, of the area, okay? And that's because we're talking about a time where there was a like synchronization between governance and rulership. That these kings were Christian or they were Jewish or they were Medusa king or Zoroastrian kings, right? They had religious affiliation here. Uh, there was, hev there was a, hevel a heavily religious uh, influence on the governments at that time, okay? And when we're talking about the governance of the Arabian Peninsula itself, uh, really the Arab uh, you know, Peninsula itself at that time, it's, it's important to understand there was no centralized government. They didn't have a central government there. So personal conflicts, right? When somebody would have beef with one another, you know, that would contribute to a lack of governance at the time within the area. You know, it was tribal law. That's, that's basically how they ruled. Uh, it was different than kingship. It was different than all of these things. But it had similarities because the leaders of the tribes, many times they were dictators. They were dictators and they couldn't be questioned. And because it was so corrupt, one thing that you know I think we'll we'll talk more about inshallah in terms of the culture, in terms of the land, uh, you know, uh, of that time and place in that region. But I'll go ahead and uh, I'll make mention of it now uh, because still legal enforcement and the preservation of people's rights are still being related back to the politics of the region, okay? Because political influence can many times dictate uh, the type of enforcement that you have, uh, you know, of civil rights and those things that, you know, as we know uh, very well today, 
But similarly, because tribal law in that region, uh, there was not a great preservation of people's rights. People had no rights. Okay, uh, if you were wealthy, if you were rich, uh, you know, if you had inf- like influence towards any of the the tribal leaders, if you had it in with them, like you had close connections, uh, then you again you'll you'll be okay. You'll be set. But if you were poor, uh, if you were you know not of no connections, if you had n- none of that stuff then you would suffer a lot. You didn't enjoy the rights and the liberties that those other people had, okay? And that's just the way that the society was structured at that time. Uh, and to talk about specifically like the culture of that time, the rights that people had, we can say that the Arabian Peninsula, uh, you know, the area where Rasulullah was born, the area where he was raised, وسلم, that area was very chaotic, okay? There was no king, there was no government, there was no rulers. Uh, you could see it almost as very barbaric. Uh, and at, but at the same time, they were the envy of other Arab. Okay? Excuse me, why? Well, how does that even make sense? Why were people envious of them? They had literally nothing. Okay? Uh, what set them apart? Because they enjoyed their complete autonomy. They lived on their own. They had no foreign influences. Nobody treated them like second or third class citizens. They enjoyed their full dignity and they had a lot of respect. It's, this is what we do, this is how we live, but hey, we're okay with it. We're gonna live our ways, right? Nobody get involved with us. Nobody talk to us, no, leave us alone, right? They were set apart from, from, from uh, everybody else, you know? So it was a bit chaotic at times. You know, the, these tribes would go to war uh, with each other you know, when your cousin beefed with one of the tribal leaders or your friend had beef with one of the tribal leaders or, or the tribal leader's son or something like that, you know, they would probably die. That, that individual would probably die, right? There was, there, was, there was no like court system that they had. So another thing that's very interesting that we can see here uh, could be designated as uh, a big factor to why the Quran was revealed amongst these, these people specifically why the Prophet was born amongst these people specifically, amongst the people of Hijaz, uh, you know, because they had, they held their rulers to great esteem. They didn't just see them as cultural, tribal, political, economic leaders, but they saw them as religious leaders as well. So when they, because of this, this notion that they had, this mentality that they had, of the way that they respected their tribal leaders. This was like a perfect setup for Rasulullah Because when he was to come in, they were to respect him because of his religious background. Okay? So nothing is a coincidence here. The way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings Rasulullah even to this people at this place, everything is strategic. And we have to understand that truly, right? Uh, they saw these, these leaders as religious uh, leaders. That's why the leader of Quraysh, for example, Banu Kinana, uh, the leader of, of the tribe himself, would be the one making rulings. You know, his decision was final in terms of where the trade caravan is going to go. Uh, he would basically dictate the law of the land. He was seen at the same time as a servant. He was seen as a caretaker. He was seen as the custodian of, of the Kaaba. He took care of the Kaaba. Okay, so you could see that that same tribal leader, uh, you know, 
that's that's making all of these uh, all of these uh, uh, big decisions here. That same leader uh, was serving water to the Hujjaj, the people that would come to see the Kaaba before Islam. Right? Uh, he was taking care of the house. They cherished that, you know. And there's a very interesting dy- dynamic in this regard because you can see like a lot of the cultural roots here, uh, you know, if you will, of, uh, you know, of the Islamic, let's say, code of conduct, okay? Uh, the behavior, uh, if not the roots, at least the seeds that were planted here. You can see all of this in pre-Islamic Arabia. That's, that's, that's important to understand. Uh, if we're talk, talking about a little bit of the, the social uh, life of the Arab, what was the social life of the Arab? Slavery in society was a very interesting mix, right, of different social constructs uh, that it existed or coexisted at one time. You know, I'll talk about the negatives and, and, and then I'll talk about the positives. Some of the negatives that existed at that time. Uh, again, you had a lack of you know, fair, equal treatment of all segments of society. Slavery was prevalent at that time. And not just any type of slavery, but slavery that treated slaves lesser than their animals. Okay? It was, it was bad. Okay? A camel, a horse would enjoy a better treatment uh, than, than a slave would. Okay? The dynamic of women in pre-Islamic Arabian society. That was a very interesting dynamic as well, right? It was, uh, you know, you had two very different experiences of women within pre-Islamic Arabian society. You had on one side, women in, in, in social circles, um, you know, would be treated very unfortunately. Uh, they would be treated like subhuman, really. Uh, and then, you know, they, they literally were a commodity that, that were passed from family to family, from man to man, you know. And, and there was also a segment of society, the more elite like within the families of the, the tribal leaders, that they held women to a greater you know, standard to, to, with, with, with esteem, right? Uh, they not only owned land, they were a great, you know, they had money, they had wealth. Khadija radiallahu anha, she's a very good example of this. She was one of the greatest businesswomen uh, ever, right? She's a perfect example of that. Uh, they played even women at that time a critical role within the politics of the region, you know, their voice mattered. Hind, the wife of Abu Sufyan, the daughter of Utbah, she's a great example of this. You could designate her as one of the key contributors to the Battle of Uhud. She was like, she was the reason, she was a big instigator, right, of, of, of the Battle of Uhud, okay? Uh, leadership would be passed down, uh, you know, and along that, money would be passed down. So these people, it was, it was inherited, okay? Uh, money dictated, like just like today, right? Money dictated uh, how you're going to be treated. You have money, we're going to show you respect, okay? And that was passed through families as well, from generation to generation. And it was definitely one of those dynamics that, you know, we still see, again, in, in, in parts of the world today, where it is all about money. If you're born into a bad situation, there's very little tr- chance for you trying to better your situation because of the obstacles that already that you have in your life. But if you were born into a, 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 a situation of wealth, then you're, you're pretty much set, okay? So to talk a little bit about the moral, ethical, cultural, uh, you know, uh, culture that existed at that time, 
so literally again about the culture of the Arab in terms of modesty let's say in terms of moral ethical culture that existed as I talked about if you committed wrong to someone who was a higher social status than you you'd probably be killed okay uh, whether that crime warranted it or not because that's just what you deserved because you didn't have what they had how dare you speak out against somebody who has more money than you somebody of a higher status than you right so you would be you would be uh, tortured or you would be uh, killed okay uh, if you committed wrong to somebody of a lesser status than you you'd probably get away with it nobody's gonna really care and that's just how it worked at that time right in terms of modesty of the people before, again, pre-Islamic Arabia, we're talking about, you had opposite extremes. Uh, marriage, for example, was something that was, uh, you know, uh, treated very sacred. A man would propose to a woman, right? Uh, you know, they would be married. He would give her like a gift, like mahr, right? He would give her a gift. Uh, they, would, they, they would treat each other respectfully. He would treat her respectfully. Uh, he would respect her as his wife, the mother of his children. But there was a big part of society at that same time, unfortunately, where it was the complete opposite. We're talking about major extremes here, right? There's a hadith where Aisha radiallahu anha, she narrates to the Prophet or from the Prophet that there are four kinds of marriages that existed during that time, okay? The first was what's similar to present day marriage, meaning that, you know, the marriage of, you know, of Islam is very similar, it's comparable to that. The second one was basically uh, people didn't treat marriage very sacredly. They would cheat on their spouses, right? Infidelity was rampant uh, within the Arab society. So, uh, so there was a segment of society where that was very common, okay? And it was almost expected, really. It was assumed that spouses would many times, you know, cheat on each other, right? And they would have no problem with that, uh, you know, uh, at all. The third type of marriage uh, that Aisha anha narrated, uh, you know, that existed before Islam was fornication, you know, and it was, you know, there was at least a marriage, even though it was a scam of a marriage, but it was, it was considered to be a marriage because fornication became, fornication became very rampant, you know, and a woman, uh, you know, would almost fornicate with a set of group of men, okay, and whenever she would be pregnant, she would designate one of those men to be the, the child of her or the father of her child. That's how it would be, you know, and he would take that child as his own and he would raise that child. And it was just very, you know, unfortunate type of communal, uh, you know, fornication that was going on. The fourth type of marriage, uh, which is not even a type of marriage, really, but that detail came at the end of the hadith that Aisha radiallahu anha narrated. Um, and it was straight up. Right, that uh, what we know today of prostitution, straight up prostitution, that's what it was, you know, and that existed uh, during uh, the time, you know, basically houses would be marked, literally, they would be marked, you would know um, where to do your business pretty much, those houses would be marked, and uh, you would go and you would engage in, uh, in, in fornication and adultery and, uh, and call it a day. Right, so the Prophet ﷺ at the end of the Hadith says that these three latter forms of nikah or these forms of marriage were abolished by Islam. Islam removed them. 
okay? Because they considered those to be marriage. It was basically people living off of their desires and incorporating their desires into, into kind of their, their, their own moral ethical code. Okay, so they considered it to be marriage, even though it wasn't really marriage. Okay, and Rasulullah said these three versions of marriage, the last three became abolished by Islam, uh, you know, and forbidden by Islam, and they weren't recognized by Islam. Okay, uh, and only the first form of it uh, remains. Okay, so this gives you a little bit of an idea of the situation, the circumstances, uh, the family, the modesty, morals, ethics. That existed uh, pre-Islam, uh, uh, Islamically, you know, within within Arabia, inshallah. Uh, we'll continue talking about the culture of the Arab, uh, Taala, and the the emotional attachments they had with family and and those relations, uh, Taala. Uh, after we'll take a, a couple minute break, Bismillah. We'll let you guys kind of um, get uh, get some coffee and stuff. I know I'm throwing a lot of information at you. Um, and you know, I promise, inshallah, we're gonna get in, into the seerah eventually, not today, that's for sure. But uh, this is part of it because we have to really understand when we discuss Rasulullah's life. This is gonna come. This is gonna make sense, right? Because these questions will be answered again. You know, Rasulullah could have been sent anywhere, anywhere in, in, in the world. Why did Allah subhanahu wa taala choose, you know, uh, Mecca, right? Why did Allah choose these people? Why did Allah choose Arabic? Why was it the, why was it not Chinese, <laughs> right? Why was it not anything else? Okay, and 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 that's important to to understand, uh, because the more that you study the seerah, uh, you know, some like like I gave a story last time, an example. There was somebody who was reading Quran, and they're like, you know, I'm not going to take Hadith. Why do I need to take Hadith? خلاص, the Quran, the word that's Islam, the word of Allah. You know, I'm going to sit here and read Quran and Hadith at the same time. Too much, you know. If they really followed the Quran, they would understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, follow Rasulullah sallam. Following Rasulullah sallam is following Allah, is obeying Allah, is obeying the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So we take his Hadith, understanding that this is a command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that person was given just a Hadith book, you know, because, you know, just or a seerah book. Just said, learn about Rasulullah sallam, learn about his life. That's all. I know you don't accept hadith, don't read hadith, just learn about his life, learn who he was. And subhanAllah, he read it and he bought more and more books and he just loved seerah. Uh, you know, a couple of months passed by and he's like, that's not even a phase, and that's not even a question that he has anymore. Why should I even take hadith? It was like in his second nature that I have to take hadith, I have to learn from, from, from Rasulullah Sallam. So let, let us take a break, bi'idnillahi ta'ala, inshallah we'll, we'll continue. Jazakumullah khairan. طيب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولاه وبعد continue eating and 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 drinking no problem inshallah I'm just gonna continue بإذن الله just to for the sake of time to catch up بإذن الله on the stuff that we need to talk about so again just to end off you know talking about the culture of the Arab سلة الرحم was very important family ties those things were very important and they kept, you know, keeping family bonds. That was a very important part of uh, of their culture, right? Family bonds and ties. Okay. Uh, to talk a little bit about the economic situation, we talked about the geographical situation, the historical situation, uh, the cultural situation, morals, ethics. Uh, to talk about the economic situation, uh, and I briefly mentioned mentioned it a little bit, 
But one thing that needs to be understood is that, uh, you know, about the economic situation pre-Islamic Arabia is that trade and business was the primary source and form of making a living, trading and business, right? That's what existed, okay? There was some farming that existed as well, but it was still a minority, not like trade and, and, and business, okay? That was, uh, that was a rarity, uh, the farming. Uh, so the primary form of uh, you know, economics was trading, selling, business, caravans that were going out, uh, you know, uh, and business with outside regions. You know, they didn't have a lot of natural resources. It's a desert, okay? Um, so primarily focus was trading with people outside of, uh, of the region of uh, Arabia here, taking goods from one border to another. And that's basically how the people there, they made a living. And this was their economic uh, system, you know, uh, and it was based upon this. It was built all, all on this, uh, you know, regards. And again, because of the tribal instability here, because of the political instability that we have, their economics would, suff would suffer a lot, okay? Uh, the economic situation pre-Islamic Arabia, it wasn't stable at all. And it was like this vicious cycle, right? The political instability uh, would make their economic situation very uh, unstable. Uh, because, you know, bec and because of that situation, the economic situation being unstable, it would feed back into their political instability. It was like a back and forth here. It's a, it's a constant cycle, okay? Um, and so basically they would be involved in a lot of warfare. There's a lot of fighting because of everything that was going on. Uh, poverty, hunger uh, was very prominent, um, you know, just like we see in like uh, third world countries today, uh, you know, and it's unfortunate, it's growing. Uh, but again, there was no middle class society. It was either really rich or really poor. Okay, they didn't have a middle class. Uh, you had very, very elite people and you had very, very poor people. And that basically constituted to a majority of the people of, uh, of the land. Uh, so I'm gonna focus a little bit about the ethics now. What were the positive elements of pre-Islamic Arabia? What were they known for? What was good about them, right? About their culture? Number one, and a lot of you guys uh, are familiar with this. Uh, is anybody not Arab here? Okay, welcome. <laughs> I feel like we have to all send a special welcome. Um, we're familiar with these things, right? Uh, hospitality was known. That was one of the key qualities of, of, of the Arab, right? You know, like, okay, what does that mean? You're nice to them? You're hospitable, right? Uh, again, because the culture that we live in today, because of hospitality, it's, it's very minimal, okay? It was a big part of the experience of pre-modern society, uh, you, know, pre, uh, you know, Islamic Arabia. Because the second that you traveled, you were instantaneously a guest, okay? You were a guest right away, you know? Um, any type of travel, you know? Uh, instability within your own personal life. If you were having going through issues, you were immediately led to being, you know, uh, a guest. So hospitality was a big part of the culture. There's no hotels. There's no restaurants. You can't, you know, stay at the Hilton next to Chama. You know, there's none of that. There's no grocery stores. There's no. There's not. There's nothing like that, right? These are, these are uh, a lot of the types of the conveniences that we have set up today, they didn't exist. So immediately you were dependent on somebody's hospitality. Okay, it was embedded in their, in their culture. 
you know, of people being nice and people, you know, bringing you in, welcoming you in. And it was a strong suit for these people for sure. It was almost, you know, some of the historians, they, you know, they say something very interesting. They say that, you know, hospitality was so much of a quality of theirs. Uh, it was almost to a fault, right? It was almost like to a fault. That's how hospitable they were, that it would uh, uh, come to, to hurt them at times, right? Uh, that in the spirit of hospitality, they would commit, you know, wrong to another person, perhaps. They would commit aggressions towards people in the pursuit of hospitality. It's almost like, you know, like how, like Arab, you want to pay, you know, for something and everybody's fighting and then you break the cash register or something like that. <laughs> the guy's like, lose it, bro. Just take your coffee and go away, you know? Uh, it's like they would cause harm, literally, because people were trying to be hospitable to, to, uh, to other people. Um, and sometimes, really, it would jeopardize the well-being of their own family, really, you know, because they were trying to be hospitable. And this is the strong sense of hospitality, uh, you know, uh, some things that, you know, existed, again, uh, because, you know, infidelity was rampant, uh, all of that stuff, you know, they would often, you know, they would offer up, you know, sometimes even in the form of hospitality, their own spouses, right? That was considered being hospitable because there was no dictation there. There was no religious boundaries. They didn't know what halal and haram was. That didn't exist. So it was their form. Right? When Islam came, that's why it's important. A lot of times people, you'll talk to people of religion and they'll be like, you know, I feel this makes most sense to me. I feel this is what's right. You know, I, I feel, you'll hear that a lot. I feel, I think this, this is what makes sense most to me. This is how I see it. Right? And Islam is not based off of your desires, your whims, your fancies. Islam is not. It's, n it's not based off of what you feel or what you think. With all due respect, who are we? We're the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Islam is based off of what Allah factually knows is best for you, is best for society, is best for the world around you. Okay, and it's important to, to understand that. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala came to, to tell us, you know, stay away from this, it was no longer, you know, why, right? Because people had a love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they know Allah loved them, they know Allah created them, they know Allah existed. Okay, even pre-Islamic, even worshiping idols, they knew, uh, like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you were to ask them who created the heaven, heavens and the earth, Allah, they're going to tell you Allah, would cre Allah created us. Allah created everything. You know, they had, a, they had a deep understanding for God. So they were ready to take all of that stuff out of their life when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would tell them to, uh, to stay away from uh, something like that. Right? Um, the Arab linguists, you know, they note something very interesting that uh, karam, right, which means to be noble uh, or dignified, right? Uh, and a good noble host was, for, was referred to as karim. He or she was karim or karima, right? Uh, it's interesting where this actual word comes from. Karam is also the word, of, uh, word for grapes, okay? Uh, it comes from as well. A type of grapes is, uh, you know, also is extracted from that. While inab is a bunch of grapes, okay. But karam uh, is even, you know, uh, makes reference to grapes themselves, right? Karam, which comes from uh, karam, okay. Because it was seen uh, kind, you know, a kind of hand in hand. They're not just, you know, uh, f you know, feeding of the grapes, but what comes from grapes? Wine. 
comes from grapes, right? They were big on wine, alcohol back in the days. So like something as simple as, as a grape, so much would come from that. Okay, so they would they would consider somebody as kareem or karam and reference to that because not only are you a grape, but there's fruits that come after you. There's benefits even after the hospitality that you provide for them. So it's interesting, even the word itself, like look at look at the deep understanding of the word itself and what that comes from, like the the the, the influence that it that it has and why somebody is known as 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 kareem. Okay. Um, Another thing that was very, uh, you know, a great quality of pre-Islamic Arab was the sanctity of a person's word. When somebody would give you their word, that was it. When they say, I give you my word, that was it. People were, they were known for their word. They were held, you know, they held their word to be very sacred. Because again, in a place where there's no law, there's no court, uh, there's no judge, there's no legal system, a person's word is everything that they had to offer. That's what they had to offer. Okay, so it was held to a great standard here. Uh, and especially because poverty being very rampant, uh, sometimes a person had nothing else to offer. It's like, I can't give you money, I can't give you anything else, but I'm going to give you my word. And, and people, you know, he was a man of his word, as they say. Okay. Um, and that was something known as, as, as honorable. Okay. Uh, there was a sense of honor that they had, these people. There was a sense of honor. They had a, re- a natural rejection for injustice. Okay, they had a sense of honor, uh, and they, you know, at least philosophically or you know conceptually, they were opposed to injustice. Right? We still see injustices within them, but they were like at least conceptually opposed to that idea, uh, even though it was again rampant. But the idea itself or that concept, they they didn't like. Right, and that's why we see the pre-Islamically we see the uh, you know half al-fudul what we call right the the treaty uh, that the act being into uh, into put in place uh, that would be that would be held you know that we will fight will strive to make at least uh, you know uh, put our support in preserving people's rights. There was this treaty that was taken place between uh, between people. The Prophet sallam. He was a part of Half al-Fudul, right? And I said that, you know, even after Islam, it was a part. It was what brought, uh, you know, they would come and they would sign it, this, this, this treaty between them, and they would back it up. And this was like, like a contract uh, that, uh, that they had uh, to, to honor, you know, the words of people that were being, uh, you know, kind of put out, okay? A lot of good things that they had, you know, a leader... Uh, you know, for example, would s- literally sacrifice his own animal and would skin the animal himself and would cook the food uh, himself and serve the food to his people. And they found dignity in that. That's important to understand as well. You know, and we talked a little about, about that. The leaders weren't just rulers sitting behind their thrones here, right? Uh, that's why they say, Sayyidul al Qawmi Khadimuhum, right? A ruler of their people is the one who serves their people. And this is the sunnah of Rasulullah right? If you want to be a leader, you serve the people. We have this notion here, especially like living in the West. We look at these high positions, like I want to be a CEO of a company, right? I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be, you know, a doctor. I get, I get to this level, this status where I just, now I made it. I have a degree. I have a, a letter or two letters in front of my name and, and, you know, I think that, you know, I'm everything now. 
right? And we, we have this, this sense of entitlement uh, that we kind of grow into here living in the West. But back then, the Arab, they knew that if you wanted to truly be a leader, you would serve your people. You would be on the grounds doing the work, serving the people. And we saw this even, and we're going to talk about this, we saw this in the life of Rasulullah, the greatest example in the Khulafa, Abu Bakr and Umar and Ali, Uthman radiallahu anhuma. Right? We saw this, we saw this in, 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 in the way that they, they acted and how they were uh, and how they would uh, treat people and how they would rule themselves. That if they told somebody to do something, they were the first to do it, right? That's a very important quality that we lose out on, that we have to kind of come back to. You know, it's like almost we feel like we made it to the top. When you make it to the top, that's when the most work needs to be done at the grassroots level. Not because you're sitting you know, at the top and you can look down on everybody now because you made it. No, it's you help people and you bring them up with you. You hold their hand and you bring them up on that journey with you. You work with them. Right? That is a true, a true leader. Okay? Uh, and this comes to every aspect. It's not even just like, it's just life. It's life. So many times you see people sitting at your house, you go to your grandma's house or something like that, you know? People start fighting who's going to make shay, who's going to, you know, who's going to pour the shay. And everybody's throwing everybody's name around. Be the person who goes, guy or girl, wallah, just get up. You know, that's it. Just put it on, you know, and, 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 and serve your family. It starts with your family, right? It's not for you to be out here and let me, let me kind of show off and I want to show people that I'm, I'm here volunteering at the masjid or I'm here doing something, you know, I'm, I'm outside, you know, fighting for Palestine and I want my voice heard and I want to be on this platform and whatnot, right? It's, it's at that grassroots level, uh, you know, and it starts with your family first. Serve your family. Serve your family. Be there for your family. Who cares if you're tired, right? Always fight. For, for, for to be the first one to be able to give back and to be able to, to get that reward of, 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 of being known as somebody who's always in hospitality and always in, you know, in khidmah and service to uh, your family members. That's important. The Arab used to have that and we lost that. A lot of times, especially being born and raised here, it's a big thing that we lost touch with, you know, and we have to really uh, kind of get back to, you know, this idea of, of, you know, what they had to offer. And it was not all bad. There was a lot of good qualities that the Arab used to have and that we should be grateful for. Uh, that if the world saw, you know, people become jealous of that. How many times people, like, I've, like, even, like, I've talked to non-Muslims, right? They've gone to Philistine before. They've gone to Amman before. And they're like, oh, wow, like, I was just walking and, like, seven people invited me into their house. You know, and I had something called Mansaf, right? I'm like, oh, really? Was it good? You know, and like this was this is this is the culture of 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 the Arab. This is the culture of the people, and we and, and we and we really need to kind of stick to those those roots. There's there's it's not like one or the other. You can mesh living in the West, you know, having your society, having your life, with being proud of where you come from and who you are and the qualities that you have to offer, right? Because when people truly see those qualities, like they'll be mesmerized, they'll be like amazed. Like, you know what I mean? You're, you're a very generous person, you know? 
Um, and, and, and I remember one story, uh, you know, a mentor and teacher of mine gave like, uh, just talking about like Arab versus non-Arab or just like uh, in general, like uh, how people are, you know, you have your friends from school or something like that and you go to, you go to somebody's house and they're like, you know, they're not Muslim, they're not Arab. They don't offer you anything to drink. They don't offer you anything. You're like, bro, can I get like a water? Like, oh, bro, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm saving that for tomorrow or something like that or whatever. Water's expensive these days, you know? It's like, it's like, really, you know? Um, be be hospitable because this is a characteristic, you know, not just, you know, again, that was embedded in the Arab before even Islam came down. Islam came to emphasize it, right? Uh, but it was who people were because they worked from, you know, and did what was in their heart. And and we have to do that uh, oftentimes, b'ithnillah ta'ala. Um, there were certain things that were very interesting about uh, about Arab, you know, that... And they believed in certain simplicities that made uh, their culture very interesting, a uh, very interesting cul- uh, culture. Um, ethics was a part uh, that were a part of that culture, which uh, contributed definitely to the revelation of the Quran and the birth of Rasulullah right? Uh, like all these things, they, they, they had to, they played a big role. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take some time and talk about the traditions Right, that were part of the Arab life, uh, pre-Islamic Arab in the area of Hijaz. And so much so that there are certain books of history say that all of the, the literate people of Mecca, when we're not even up to, you know, uh, you know, they weren't even up to 20 literate people. There wasn't even 20 literate people in Mecca. Look at it. Rasulullah was illiterate, right? Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right, you're talking about like the books of history saying there was only like about 20 literate people in Mecca, okay? Uh, people who knew how to read and write fluently in the entire city at the time of Rasulullah. So illiteracy was very rampant, and in spite of this, you know the Arabs still took a big, uh, you know, they held knowledge to a high extent. It was very important to them, right? And it was carried primarily orally through oral tradition you know now again you could see this almost uh, kind of you know like this circular discussion here part of the reason why they were illiterate was because there were you know they were people of great memory and people of oral tradition but again people are, are because of the great oral tradition and the reliance upon their memory they never developed a sense of urgency about learning how to read and write they knew how to memorize very well right Right, stories would be shared down from generations, and, and readings and things that they memorized and learned. You know, interesting. The Quran came down orally; didn't come down via book. Right, Rasulullah Allah Subhanahu wa Taala preserved it immediately in the heart of Rasulullah Sallam. Right, uh, Quran is memorized today. Fourteen hundred years later, we still have that tradition. There is no book in the world that is memorized like the Quran is memorized. I can get rid of every Quran in the world. Okay, online, in person. And I can bring somebody from China, somebody from Australia, somebody from Africa. In a matter of hours, we can rewrite the Quran, all 604 pages, letter by letter. Right? It's preserved in the hearts of the believers. Right? So this, this oral tradition was, 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 was known. Okay? They never felt like they needed to learn how to read and write, you know, uh, because it's like we, we memorized everything. Okay, so they, they understood and they took a, a great, you know, premium, uh, you know, on knowledge. 
you know, when when again uh, certain parts of the world would bring back information of astrology and and economy and trade and business, you know, and stuff of that nature, uh, they would bring back all this knowledge with them when they would trade. They were trading with people from other regions. They would bring that, this knowledge with them. They would spread this knowledge orally, right? Uh, genealogy was a was an expertise with 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 an Arab. Like they they excelled in this. You know, it was something they were very keen on, like their lineage, where they came from, who who their you know by the you know who who their great 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 grandparents were. You know, the history you know of the lineage was memorized by the chi- by the child by the age of four. By four years old, you already knew all of the stuff. You memorized it. You memorized your own family tree, twenty generations back, by the age of four, right? And these were people who were, you know, they're not, they were illiterate. They were not literate, right? They would memorize them. They would memorize, uh, you know, all of these things, subhanAllah. You know, who was your great-great-grandfather? Probably half the people in this room don't know, you know. Um, and it's, it's, it's important to, because they, they, they held a high standard of where we come from, who we are, right? You can't forget about those things.